I do want to pause and just thank um, all you guys. Thank the pastors, thank the staff, thank the ushers, thank the sound techs, thank the musicians, thank all you guys. Because, you know, it's easy to kind of get lackadaisical and it's easy to kind of like, oh, okay, the pastor's gone, let's take a vacation. And you're here and you're serving and you're putting it down, you're putting in the work and God sees that and he's, he's happy. So, you know, thank you so much. Thank you, Pastor Junior, Pastor Patty, for just covering that and, and being there and, and not skipping a beat. So, you know, I, I really, really, really want to commend you. And, and, and as someone who has, um, I kind of lived in the shadows, it's, uh, you know, it's, some, it's a thankless job at times. And you don't always, you, not to say I feel appreciated, but I don't think sometimes the church just doesn't know what you have to go through just to get here, right? Sometimes the work you have to go through at home just to get here. And, and I want to tell you that God does, and he sees that. And he's doing a new thing. And um, you may not see it, but he's deposited it. He's given you a new fire and a new anointing for this season. And he's called you out. And he's separated you. But he's refining you. And he's restoring you. But he's leading you. And what your word and what your heart's are beginning to unfold. There's a generation that not only needs it, but is dying for it. It's amazing that, and, and, and it's, I think this, this sermon has changed three times, and now we're changing again, um, where, you know, I, I was, you know, if you've done your studies, right, and if you know a little bit about the L.A. area, this was home to one of the biggest revivals that ever took place, the Azusa Street Revival. And it's amazing because you would think that you know, given the 80s and the 90s, or the decade of violence that, that just was running rapid in L.A., right, and in the surrounding communities, the gang violence and the, the you know, the addiction to drugs and all Reaganomics and all that good stuff, you would have never known that there was a revival that was once here. And it led, actually, the spark and the fire that came out of that led to a lot of just other denominations and the beliefs. I think there's, I think there's an estimate that says, I don't know if it's, it's close to, I don't know if it's 700 million that actually accredit the Azusa Street Revival for in some way and somehow depositing in their lives. And, and from them, they were affected. That's amazing. You really think about it. But, but what happens there? Like, right? You have this revival. You have this spark. You have this fire. And it flows, but then it dies out. And it goes away. Or it, it can be a flicker, or it could be just a little bit of, 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 you know, an ember. And so then what, what, what occurs? So we, we oftentimes, like even today, we were saying, you know, you know, Holy Spirit, fill me, fill me, fill me, fill me, Holy Spirit, fill me, fill me, fill me, fill me, Holy Spirit. And you're filled. You're, you're anointed. He's anointed you. You've been anointed. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You have the Holy Spirit filling you. And if we have the Holy Spirit in me and I've been anointed and he's flowing through me, then why do not my actions or why are my, what, what I'm seeing, my works, you know, my gifts, my talents, why is it that I'm not seeing the results that's expected or that I desire? Or what even Jesus says, greater things than these you shall do. So we're, we're going to dig into this um, a little bit.
And if I had the title of the sermon up, or if I had a sermon title, it would be Fresh Oil. And I think I'll stop there. But we don't stop there, right? It's Fresh Oil. Holy Fire. What else? New Wine. Now that's what, what Pastor Sam has been preaching on these past couple of um, these past couple of weeks. Give me one second here because this technology of mine decided to, there we go. Thank you, I'm back now. Like I said, wasn't my first choice. We tried to print, but it didn't work. But if I had a, 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 a title, it would be Fresh Oil, Anointed in the Fire, and Anything Anointing. So we've all been anointed, and you have the anointing, which is the Holy Spirit, and you are you know, anointed to do greater works and works. And we're going to look at that a little bit about Okay, so then if we have the anointing to do greater works and we have this series out where we're saying um, fresh oil, holy fire, new wine, then what should follow now are, is that I should be able to like do the work that he's placed in me. So what, what we're going to do is we're going to be doing a little bit of comparison and contrasting of, of two verses, two scriptures first. And the first one is going to come out of um, Jeremiah 29, 11. And that one is, 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 is quite a familiar verse, right? It's, it, it reads, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. Interesting. That's like not an anthem, but that's like one of those, you know, Verses, scriptures that we all kind of turn to, we all heard at some point or moments in, the life, in our lives, right? You know, the Lord says, I have plans for you. And they're good plans, not for disaster and to give you a future and a hope. But then he tells them, in those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your spirit. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would just come now, Father God, and anoint my lips. Father God, that you would speak and not I. We thank you for every life in here, Father God, and the deposit you are making right now. Lord, we just thank you for your sacrifice on Calvary, and we give you all the honor and glory in Jesus' name, amen. So if you take that scripture, and he says, wholeheartedly, if you search me, you will find me. But he gives him a qualifier. You know, it always starts with prayer. It always starts with prayer. So if, if, if you're not praying, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, that's the first, that's the first rule of thumb. You got to pray. And anything you've seen it, he, you know, he says, it, from, from the Israelites when they were, when they were in um, captivity to, to the disciples who were in the boat. Just cry out to God. Cry out to God. So the first part in all of that is to pray. And then it says, I will listen if you look with me wholeheartedly. Psalms, or Proverbs 3, chapters 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. and all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Well, there's that little word of trust and heart. The trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, it's, it gets a little conflated because you think, okay, I'm trusting in God, but I'm not seeing the results. I'm trusting in God but things just aren't happening. I'm trusting in God, but I'm not getting the healing. I'm trusting in God, but the promotion's not there. I'm trusting in God, 
and I can't pay the rent. I'm trusting in God. And so he's telling you to trust in him, not just when it's all going good, but when it's also going sideways. He's saying to trust in him with all your heart. And then it's in those moments where the trust becomes a little bit difficult when the situation that surrounds you doesn't align with your expectation. So you have the big two F words, right? You have your feelings and you have faith. Your feelings a lot of times want to creep in and encroach on you and want to prevent you from going forward in your faith. But you have to detach your feelings because faith doesn't come by feeling. It comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you have to know what the word of God says and you have to believe in order for you to acquire the faith to be able to overcome or to go through whatever it is you're facing. But if you rely on your feelings and you're saying, I trust you, God, but only when it hurts, I'm going to back up and do it my way. Then you're going to lean on to your own understanding. Then you're going to acknowledge what you feel or think. And that's all he's saying. He's saying here, wholeheartedly you will find me. Why is this important? Well, then if we juxtapose this to Daniel 3, chapters 19 through 23, it's the story of the three Hebrew youth, correct? And everybody knows the one of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace, and, and Sunday schools, you know, you've heard it a thousand times, well, I did. But um, it's a familiar story. And here it reads, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other cloths were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. What does that have to do with Jeremiah 29-11? I mean, what? Anything? It has everything to do with that. You see, when, when Jeremiah, who's known as the reaping prophet, wrote that scripture, he was addressing this generation. He was talking to Daniel, and, and their names weren't originally Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was Mishael, it was Hananiah, and it was Azariah. So he's writing to them because at this point and moment in time, they were in exile. See, Judah was a vassal state, and they paid for protection, the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. They decided to stop paying for protection. And so Nebuchadnezzar said, hey, pay up. And they were like, eh, okay. And, uh, so what happens is, okay, he comes in there and this utterly destroys. He says he carries off, he carried off treasure from the temple and then he took into exile all these Israelites, okay? He took them into exile. And in, those, in that exile group was Daniel, Misael, Hananiah, and Azariah. But he also took out, like, some of the best of the best. He took out the scribes, the teachers, all the, you can say, kind of the important people, right? That's what they, they said. And then it says he left the poor, but the poor, you know, he left the poor, but he took all these other ones. So he kind of, like, you know, he took them into exile, and they were there, and they were into the king. They were forced into the king's service, and they had three years of um, being trained. And in there, they had to learn a new language. They had to read Babylonian literature. They had to consume a new diet, and then they had to, um, they got their names changed. And that's all important, and we'll get to it. But I want you to understand that when, when um, Jeremiah wrote this, he wrote this 
at a moment in time where they were in exile. And prior to that, he told them, right, before he says, I have a plan for you, right, before he even says that, he tells them, hey, hey, guys, listen, I know what happened, and, and I've been telling you guys, basically, that judgment and doom was coming, that you needed to repent, that, you know what, you know, change your ways. I've been telling you, I said, and if it wouldn't happen, so, but, but he says, you know what, though? The Lord says you're going to be here for 70 years. And he says that, you know what, make yourselves at home. Build. Raise a family. Get comfortable. You're going to be here. But, but he also says he has a plan for you. And the plans are for good and not for disaster, to give you a hope and to give you a future. And that when you look to him wholeheartedly, you will find him. And so what happens is that you, you think about that. How many times have you been in a position or a place where it's like your last breath, like you're grasping, like you, you just, you know, you're desperate, you're hungry, you, you're searching, and all you have is a word. All you have is the word of God. All you have to depend on is that word. All you have is his word. All you can do at that moment is decide, am I going to trust in his word, or am I going to go ahead and be like, okay, I got to figure out how to get out of my circumstance, out of this situation. So when we're going to talk today, we're going to talk about how in these circumstances, whether it's in a, the trial, the trauma, in the process, in the fire, that you have, you are anointed, and you have an anointing. And, 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 and a few of these anointings in, in that fire, in that, in that, in that test, in that trauma is that you've been anointed in truth in any trial, any trauma, that you've been anointed with peace in any process, and you have an anointing of freedom in any fire. And, and so we need to break that down. You notice that there's in, the word in. Now, in is a preposition for all you English majors, right? It's a word used before a noun or a pronoun. It, it marks its relation to the rest of the sentence. Now, you says your, your righteousness of Christ, right? That, that uh, he said his only son that in Christ all things are possible. So you constantly have these different verses where you're, you're see in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. So that's important because he doesn't say with Christ Jesus. And so when you have that little preposition in, it indicates inclusion. It, indi it, indi it indicates connection. It indicates position. It indicates purpose. Now, if it was, word, it was the word with, that would be different because that's like a transaction. It's an agreement. It's an action. But he's telling you in. In him we move. In him we breathe. In him we have our being. So you have to know, one, who is the truth? Well, Jesus is the truth. For I am the way, the truth, and the light. And the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So the truth is Jesus. And, and the Bible tells you that. It tells you he is the truth. So when you know who the truth is, and, and in the Greek, that's like, the, like all reality. That's like, you know, in theory and in practice. He's whole truth. It's like when you get to the Greek and you got, you know, I am, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. He's the logos. He embodies creation and he is truth. In, in, in its own definition, there is nothing that can stand up against that. So when you realize that the difference between with and in is that when you're in Christ, that means you're positioned in him. 
You're inside. He's inside. It's not with the width where I could be next to you. Like, I could be with Junior, and we could be at a game, and he could be having front row seats, and I could be in the bleachers. I'm with him, but we're not together. So you can be with God, but he isn't in you. I'm with him. I, I subscribe to what he's saying. I believe, I think so, on some of this word. I trust him to a degree. And then all of a sudden when you're put in that position to where your faith is tested, you find out, is he in you or with me? And that's where he's saying trust in the Lord with all your heart. Because to trust in the Lord with everything means that he has to be in you. Trust is a very, a very um, I don't want to say complicated, but it's a, it's a very intricate thing in the sense that it's personable. You build trust with someone that you've built a rapport with, that you know, that you understand. And the thing is, when that trust is violated, now you have this understanding or this definition of what it is to have your trust broken. But the thing about humans is that when we're born, we're born in, in this world and we have what are called our, our, our senses, right? The, the senses touch our tactical senses, our olfactory, our you know, hearing, smelling, seeing, um, all these senses that we go ahead and now as a young child, we begin to bring in data. And that data gets stored in our computer. And in that computer, then it becomes what we know as after a while, you know, we take this data in and inside there's our brain. And in our brain there's these neurons. And these neurons fire back and forth. And they transmit information. And that information begins to tell your body and, and your head how you're going to react, what you're going to feel, or what that is and what that isn't. And what happens too is once these neurons start to get used to something or they start to expect something, they, call, they form what is called a habit loop. And that habit loop begins to be how you begin to act in certain situations. Begin how you begin to perform. So when your trust is violated, you know, you lent them money, you gave them this, and they didn't return it. They told you something, someone very near and dear or intimate to you, and, and, and they didn't reciprocate. They didn't return the favor. Or you're in a relationship, you were married, and they walked out. Or they left you. And so your heart goes through this, this feeling where all of a sudden your mind's telling it, ooh, that hurts. Okay, well, now I know better than to, tr what do we say? Now I know better than to trust them. Now I know better than to trust you. But the thing is, then we take that feeling and we take that understanding and we start to apply it to God. We want to put what we see on a God who is a spirit. And the Bible says we worship him in spirit and in truth. So you have to know the truth and it will set you free. But that you have to be in that truth and that truth has to be deposited in you. So when you have the anointing in truth for any trial, you have to understand. These three Hebrew youth and Daniel were taken into a foreign land. When they were taken into that foreign land, all of a sudden they were told, hey, you're exiles. I mean, you, you know, you're being exiled out of your home. You no longer have a home. Not only are you exiled, we're going to bring you in here and we're going to reassimilate you. We're going to re-educate you. We're going to re-indoctrinate you. We're going to force you to learn our customs. But not only that, we're going to change your name. So one of the things the enemy will do 
when he tries to try to get you out of understanding that you are in truth is he tries to, what? Confuse your identity. He tries to change your identity. And how does that happen? How does the enemy change your identity? Well, it happened here by a couple of things. The first thing is he went in and disrupted their home. He disrupted their home. He took them out of their home. It's no wonder that in America today, or even when I was in college, the divorce rate was 70%. In California, they said 75%. And the church was a little bit behind that. Now they're saying the divorce assistants are just as high in the church as it is in the world. What does that mean? The enemy's not foolish. He knows that if he can come out the institution of marriage... And if you can disrupt it, then all of a sudden, okay, I have fatherless children. I have children where division is there. And now I can come in and I can wreak havoc. And so we sit there and, and, and there's that bond between a man and a woman. A man and a woman. And the enemy says, oh, no, 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 no. That's okay. You don't need to be married. You just need to marry a, a, a man. You don't need to marry a woman. No, you, you can be who you want to be. You can do what you want to do. And he takes away that first institution trying to destroy it and pollute it. Why? Because then the children that are raised in there are all of a sudden searching for identity that they should get from the unification of their mother and father who are one. But now they're divided and so there are two. And if the mother doesn't like the father or if the father doesn't like the mother, then they're having to sit in the middle and decide, hey, what am I going to do? So because they have, hey, this feeling of our love for both of them, they're like, man, this hurts so much. So now they're looking for an identity and for a home and for a family. And who shows up? The boyfriend, the girlfriend, the gang, the teacher, you name it, the drug, the alcohol, the sport, anything to soothe that pain and to make them say, hey, look, I have an identity now. And what I can do are what these people look at me for. And then, and then what else does he do to them, tries to do? He disrupts their home, and then what does he do? He tries to redefine their purpose by trying to re-educate them in the things of, at that time, what was the world Babylon. He said, okay, we're going to change your language. We're going to change how you think, and we're going to do that by showing you our customs, and we're going to teach you what we say and how we say it. That's why your tongue is so important, James talks about it, being this little rudder, talks about how it's a fire how it can pervert, how it can pollute, and that you should watch what you say, how you can curse one moment and then the next moment you're praising God. So you need to learn the power that you have in your mouth. I can't sit here and tell Junior, hey, God bless you, brother, and then next week after my team beats him, I'm like, ah, oh, look at that punk, you know, and talk all this mess, or, you know, you know, talk all this stuff, you know what I'm saying? No. The Bible says, be holy for I am holy. That holiness is produced and what should flow out your mouth needs to be holy. And we'll talk, what does that mean? So you have to understand, by re-educating them, by sitting there and giving them a new language and, and teaching them how to, you know, a new literature and how to think, they were conditioning them. They were telling them, hey, this is what it is. Why? To take away their identity. See, they were Hebrews. They have a covenant with God. All their lifestyle, everything about them. From how they ate, to their hair, to how they worshipped, to how they built, was all based on this covenant. 
And it was a covenant that separated them from the rest of the world. They were God's chosen people. And if he says, you have no other God for, um, before me, and I'm a jealous God, he gave them these commandments. And if he said, if you follow my covenant, if you make me another one, you go left or right, then I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to prolong your life, and you're going to be prosperous. So their identity was in God. And so these guys said, okay, well, we need to go ahead and switch that up because it was a pagan society. They had many gods. There was free-flowing. So how does he redefine your purpose? By what goes in your ears and what goes through your eyes. So what you watch on that telephone matters. What you hear on that radio matters. What you see on TV matters. Oh, brother, you're getting too spiritual. You know, I grew up in a time and an era where my mom would only let us watch TBN all the time. TBN, TBN, TBN for everything. And it was so annoying. Like, for all, oh, no, 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 you can't watch that. My dad, on the other hand, was like, okay, mom's not here, whatever. And so it was like, okay, we know we love dad with us, but mom, no. And I never understood it until I started to read and understand, hey, you know what? Yeah, it matters. The subliminal messages matter. The re-education, the assimilation matters. The TV sitcoms that teach you that it's okay to sleep around, to hide it from your parents, to have an abortion, to marry the same sex. It doesn't matter. It matters. God says, be holy for I am holy. And you have to understand that. And then how does he go to further kill your identity? Well, he, he did it by trying to make them eat foods. And, and, and you read it and Daniel says, we can't eat those. It'll defile, it'll defile us. It, it, it'll defile this temple. And he's like, well, can we eat vegetables? And so that's where you get the Daniel diet. Um, for those of you that fast, and in there, he tells them no. And so the guy agrees, and they eat the vegetables, and they come out stronger than all the rest, and you can read the story. But my point is, what you consume matters. The Bible talks about, and, and, and Jesus said, it's not... What goes inside your body that defiles you is what comes out of your body that defiles you. That's why your tongue, what you say, matter. How you say it, say it matters. It's all a part of that identity. But if I can get them to talk different, if I can get them to act different, if I can get them to think different, if I can replace the image of God with the image of, and you name it, then all of a sudden I can begin to creep in and affect their identity of who they are in the righteousness of God. So now what happens, finally he does, okay, we have all these things. The kicker is, you know, we're going to change their identity by changing their names. And if you know this, you know, it was Daniel, and he changed his name to Balthazar. And then it was Hananiah, and he changed his name to Shadrach. And there was Misael, and he, sent, and he changed his name to Meshach. And then there was Azariah, and he changed his name to Abednego. And that's important, because Daniel meant God is my judge, Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is like God. And Azariah means Yahweh has help. Both Mishael and Daniel end with the suffix El for Elohim. And Elohim basically means God, plural, means he's the God of all gods. All gods in him. He's God. And then in Azariah and Hananiah, they have the suffix of offer Yahweh. 
which even for them, the Hebrews didn't even want to write the word because it was so sacred. So you could see by the very essence of what they were called, they were God in, like in them. God was their being. God was who they identified with. So then Nebuchadnezzar comes along and, and Babylon and says, okay, we're re-educating you. We're re-assimilating you. We're teaching you the new things. We're showing you the way of the world. And we're going to change your name. Daniel he called Balthasar, which means Baal protects his life. And Baal is the, the uh, Babylonian god for protection. Then he says, Hananiah, we're going to name you Shadrach, which is command of Aku, which is the Babylonian god of moon. And then he says, Mishael, we're going to name you Meshach, which is who is what Aku is, which is the Babylonian god of moon. And then Abednego was servant of Nebo, which Nebo being the Babylonian god of wisdom. So they took the very essence and their names of who they are, and they said, we're going to now give you these names so then you can identify with the gods that we serve and the culture and the context of who we are by what we call you. And so, so many times, the identity of what an individual is or who an individual is, especially our youth and our children, is being redefined by what they are being called. They're telling you, hey, you know what? You don't, you, you don't, you're not a boy. You're not a girl. You could be a cat. You could be the pronoun of it, them, whatever pronoun you want to be. But the Bible says that you were made in the image of God. It's a little controversial, but I'm going to tell you something. You were made to be the opposite of what you were made to be. He created you in his image. And because of that, here's the kicker. They say, okay, we're going to get them by changing their name. So many times that name, that moniker is what they call you. But your identity isn't what they call you. Your identity is who you've been called to be. Your identity is what you are. So see, the king knew if I can change their identity, I can change who they are. I can change who they worship. I can change what they're about. I can change what they do. So I'm here to tell you, young people, don't let the world call you outside your name. Don't let the world tell you you have to be this. Don't let the word tell you you need to do that. You serve a God that calls you. What does he call you? What does he call? What does God call us? He calls us made in the image of God. He calls us children of God. He calls us the righteousness of God. He calls us a royal priesthood. He calls us a chosen people. He calls us sons and daughters of God. He calls us saints. He calls us friends of God. He calls us temples of the Holy Spirit. He calls us more than conquerors. And he calls us new creations. So my point there is to let you know that when you're anointed in truth, then you can stand in any test or any trial because you have the truth within you. So don't let the enemy confound and conflate your identity because your identity is in Christ. And when you are in Christ, all things are possible. All, he says. So when you have that identity in truth and you have the truth to step in and say, okay, I can stand in here, I can stand in this trial, I can stand in this test because I am in Christ, I am in the truth. Then all of a sudden, you are anointed to have peace in any process. And I, and I want to take the time on this one today to go ahead and kind of go over that peace part. Because I think it's so important, especially in these times. And, and we really didn't cover this too much in the last two, so it's going to be a little bit different here. But in Matthew 10, 34, it says, Don't imagine I came to bring peace to the earth, I came to bring peace. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. 
Then the Bible says, For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12. There's a common Latin phrase. It's civis possum parabellum. And it means, if you want peace, prepare for war. You understand something. We want peace. We want everything to be okay. We don't want to be restless. You know what? It's no wonder the anxiety levels in society today are this high. That the mental, mental, mental frustration and, and diseases, our mental issues are at an all-time record. And why is that? Because the peace of God is not upon many of our lives. Because we sat there and we've identified what the world, and the Bible says, to have friendship with the world is enmity with God. So you need to recognize not only who your truth is in, but where your peace lies. So he says, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring the sword. Now that's interesting, because the book of Isaiah calls him what? The prince of peace. So if the prince of peace didn't come to bring peace, but to bring war, what does that mean? Well, you know what? To, to be friendship, to be friends with the world is enmity towards God. So there is a battle. There is a battle for your life. There is a battle for your mind. There is a battle for your heart. There is a battle for your children. There is a battle for your family. There is a battle taking, taking place daily. And you need to recognize that in that battle, God says, be still and I will fight your battles. But the only way that you are going to have peace inside of the battle is that you are in truth. Because in truth, he fights for you. And when he fights for you, then you can have the presence of mind to be still and know that he's God because he's going before you to fight that battle. So when he's fighting that battle for you, I can wait on him and I can be still. Because then the Bible says, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So he goes forth to fight that battle, and you can be still in that truth. So it's interesting because in there, you know, the thing is, is that he's called the Prince of Peace. So next time when you're in a situation, and, and it seems like, man, I can't take this. Man, it, it's overwhelming. Man, it, it's just, it won't end. I, I just, I can't get any rest. I'm restless. I can't sleep. I just, I need help. Like, I, I, it's overwhelming. I'm having an anxiety attack. And that's real. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sitting here. I, I get it. It's real. It's, it's very prevalent. And I'm not, not mocking it at all. But I want you to understand something. When you have pop on your side, then you know what? You can rest assured. Because in the Prince of Peace, you can have sleep. You can have protection. You can have goodness. You can have rest. In Isaiah 26, 3, it says, You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Now may the Lord of peace himself give all his peace at all times and in every situation. The Lord be with you all. Interesting. Keep in perfect peace. All who trust in you, whose thoughts are fixed on you. You see, so many times in there, that peace is Hebrew and it's shalom. Nothing missing, nothing broken. It's wholeness. It's complete. It's prosperity. It's every facet of what 
peace you think in your mind. It's serenity. It's everything. And he's telling you, I'll give you perfect peace. But what do you have to do? You have to keep your thoughts stayed on him. You have to trust in him. You have to fix your mind on him. And it was Paul who wrote in Philippians when he said, hey, be anxious for nothing but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your request known unto God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So there's the remedy right there for anxiety. It's that where are you fixing your mind and who do you trust in? When our mind are fixed on our problems, when the mind is fixed on the past, when the mind is fixed on the pain, all of a sudden we begin to look for that feeling escape from whatever it is that's conflicting us. But when we combat, when we combat that, what does Paul say at the beginning? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. It's telling you, take that problem, take that pain, take that, that, that whatever it may be, the past, and thank him for it. Because when you begin to thank him for it, then you have a heart of thanksgiving. And you're saying, hey, you know what? I'm in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And because nothing can separate me from the love of God, I shall fear no evil. And because I don't have to fear any evil, because you walk with me and you are there, then anything that tries to stand up against me will not prosper. So understanding that part there is crucial because the enemy in that re-education of those individuals, he tried to come at their heart, he tried to come at their mind because he knew if he could control their heart and he knew if he could control their mind, then he could control their actions. It's the heart, the head, the hand. And so many times we're sitting here saying, anointing flow, anointing flow, but then our actions say no. We're saying anointing flow, anointing flow, and our actions say, I go. We say anointing flow, anointing flow, and we're doing anything but allowing it to flow. And so sometimes we can go ahead and say, hey, yeah, I'm going to be the hand of Christ over her, and I, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and I have it all thought out. I'm going to go ahead and set this up like that and give here. But um, then it's like, okay, you know, I look at her or I see something, and I'm like, yeah, I don't think so, whatever. And I go ahead and dismiss it. Well, I may have had the actions, and I may have had the head, but I don't have the heart. So it has to align up. Your heart has to align up with your head. And then your actions will go ahead and now begin to flow. But that flowing of your actions should and only can come through love. If it doesn't have love, then it doesn't mean a thing. God is love. And he does not know God, does not know love. He doesn't love, doesn't know God. So to know that God is love is a function of how we need to operate when we are both in truth and in spirit. And when we are in truth and we are in spirit, then we have peace. And the only way you can have that peace is if you have that fruit of the spirit. And that fruit of the spirit all begins with love. You see, it says love, joy, what? Peace. But if I don't have love and I can't love my neighbor, because what did he say? He says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy mind, all thy soul, all thy strength. 
But then he says something else. He says, and, this, and the next commandment is great as this one. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments fulfill all the law and prophets. That's deep. Because God never told you when you were saved or when you found him, or even if you're sitting in that seat and you haven't given your life, hey, you gotta do this. You gotta take 10 steps. You gotta go ahead and anoint yourself. You gotta walk back to that street and back. He didn't give you all these conditions. He said, all you have to do is give your heart to me and to trust me. That's all. And to love me with all your heart. And the Bible says, if you love the Lord with all your heart, then what do you do? How do you show that? You obey his commands. It isn't about what you can do. It's about your obedience. Because obedience is better than sacrifice. So many times we're walking in this society. This society today is painful, young people, because you sit there and you have to go through the pain and the disgusting times of these times. And you're wondering, where is God? Who's going to help me? What can I do? Or so many times in our life, it's broken. It's hurt. It's painful. He left me. He turned his back on me and walked out. The baby died. Even before he was born, I had a sister that passed away at seven years old, a father at 49. I know about death. I've seen it on both ends. I know struggle. I know hurt. I know pain. And sometimes you absorb that so much that that becomes your name and you accept it as your identity. But God is saying, come to me and I will give you rest. And it's in that rest that you have been called. So when you come to him and you have that rest, then you can find peace. But, but, but don't be like those that have heard him and it's kind of like falling on the side. You see, I've often wondered, the Israelites, when they were in the desert, what should have been 11 days took 40 years. They said the fastest way between two points is a straight line. But that they wandered, and they wandered, and they wandered. And I asked God, wow, why did they wander so much? Well, why do we wander so much? They saw his cloud, you know, he was led them by a pillar, a, a cloud by day and, and a pillar of fire by night, right? He, he gave them manna to eat. He opened up the, the Red Sea for them to part through. He destroyed their enemies. Time after time, they were thirsty. And water came out from a rock. Time after time after time, he proved himself to these people. He showed them, I am God. I will protect you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. And yet they still wandered. And so, so many times today, we sit, we sit in church, we sit at home, we sit in our cars, and we're saying, where are you at, God? The cancer's real. The disease is real. The pain is real. The hurt is real. Where are you at, God? And he's all the time, I'm right here. I'm right here. And so what happens is when you get sit there and you're, and you're like, oh, my God, I'm questioning. I'm wondering, why did they wander and wander and wander? Well, I'll tell you why they wander. Because they kept trying to go up in the process to their future by remembering the past. You can't look at the past and expect to go forward. 
You can't look at the past and think you're going to go into the promise that you can't look at the past and ask and say, I'm trusting you, God. When you look at the past, all you're going to do is wander. All you're going to do is go in circles. All you're going to do is, here I am, and you're going to keep wandering and wandering and wandering. And God says, don't look at the past. Thank me for the past. Look forward and walk in your anointing. Walk in your calling. Walk where I've called you. Walk where you need to be. But you can only do that if you stop looking and you start listening. So it does matter what goes inside. And when you have that peace to face any problem, when you have that peace, you have that peace in any problem, then all of a sudden, you know what? You realize, you realize you have been anointed to have freedom in any fire. What? What does that mean? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out the fire. And all the officials around them crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. They went into that fire and they came out untouched. How can that even happen? How can that even happen? Well, it happens this way. A couple of things they did before they even went in, or even when they were in the fire. One, they refused to worship and bow down to other gods. I don't care what the culture tells you. I don't care about the altar of expediency. Know who you worship and who you stand for. You have to have your identity in Christ. Two, they were not afraid. The Bible talks about how they faced that king and they told that king, with all due respect, your majesty, we will not bow down and worship your God. We don't care if you throw us in the fire. It doesn't matter. Either God will deliver us or we'll be consumed. But we're not going to bow down. That's a radical faith. That's a radical stance. But is it? Is it really? Because when you are in truth, the truth sets you free. And you know that you are more than a conqueror. So then when it comes time to be faced with the situation, with, 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 with obstacle, whatever it is, that induces that fear. You know, when he writes, I have not given you a spirit of fear, but of power. Then what? Love and a sound mind. And the enemy will work backwards. He'll take your sound mind, your self-discipline, because it'll affect your love. And when it affects your love, then it can remove your power. So you have to be present and understanding where the spirit of fear comes from and who was in charge of that. And you have to gird up your loins. There is a healthy fear, but that healthy fear is the awe and reverence of God. And to have a fear of God is to trust him with all your heart. So when I'm trusting him with all my heart, then I'm saying, I'm in all of you. I reverence you. I worship you. So you can't really be true worshipers if you don't trust him with all your heart. You have to learn how to give him your heart. And then they did not fight the battle. They did not even defend themselves. Be still. I will fight your battles. They didn't come out smelling like smoke. They were bound and thrown to the middle, midst of the fiery furnace. And they didn't come out smelling like smoke. They were thrown into the midst of the furnace. The men who threw them in were killed themselves. And then God delivered and promoted them. 
When you, when you stand in the fire, you have that anointing of freedom. Why? Because in the fire, if you worship, the furnace cannot contain your flames. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when that fire burns inside of you and consumes you, there is nothing in this world that can stop you. But you have to know that. You have to act out in that. You have to be able to release that. When you're in the fire, the flames frighten the fear away. But he's not giving us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. When you're in the fire, you don't have to fight. You just need to be still and let the flames burn. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourself, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is in you. 2 Chronicles 2, 20, 11. In the fire, you have the freedom from anything that binds you because you are a flame, a part of the fire. Interesting. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. You are flames of fire. Hebrews 1, 7. You are flames of fire, but you have to know that. When you're in the fire, your enemies cannot stand the heat. In the fire, your foes will faint. The Lord your God is a devouring fire. He is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4.24. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is a heritage of the servants of the Lord. Isaiah's, Isaiah 54, 17. Anything that is not of God cannot affect you in the fire. When you're in the fire, you will not smell like fumes. Because why? You will be the flame. And what does that mean? It means this. When they went into that fire, they didn't have any fear. They didn't come out smelling like fumes. They were free. But why? Because they were consumed with the fire. They were the fire. Fire cannot eat fire. It only adds to fire. And it grows. So they knew, throw us in the fire. We have a God who is a consuming fire. The book of Revelation says Christ came back and his eyes are like fire. Understand who your God is. My God is a consuming fire. And when you are in the fire, what happens? It purifies. It promotes. It protects. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested at fire tests and purifies gold. Through your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So you have to know who the fire is and what it's about. And in the Old Testament, and we're going to wrap this up now, there was this altar. There was an altar in the temple. And that altar were for offerings and sacrifices. They would bring, whether it was their burnt offerings, with their different types of, of acts of worship and offerings there. And, and on that altar is where they would be consumed with the fire. And, and God tells them, the Levites, in, in, in Leviticus 6.13, remember the fire must be kept burning on the altar at all times. It must never go out. Under the new covenant, who is the temple? You are the temple. The Bible says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And then the Bible also tells you to present yourself as living sacrifices. Daily, crucify your passions and desires. And when you begin to crucify them and lay yourself on that altar, the fire will begin to consume. And when the fire consumes, then you have that anointing, which is that oil, which is the Holy Spirit. And when, when the fire begins to consume, that anointing begins to flow. And when that anointing begins to flow, that fire begins to grow. And when that anointing begins to flow, that fire begins to grow. And when that anointing begins to flow, that fire begins to grow. But you have to know who the anointing is. And what the anointing is attracted to. You can't think you can live a godless life and walk in his anointing. You can't think you can sit there and, okay, I'm good on Sundays, but the rest of the week I'm living like Saturday. You have to know what the anointing attracts. You have to live a Romans 12 life, a Galatians 5 life, a Colossians 3 life. You have to flame, fan the flames that are inside of you. And the way you can find those flames, the way you have the oil flow and the fire to grow is that you do justice and love mercy. You show compassion. You walk in the spirit. You take care of the orphans and the widows. You feed the hungry. You visit the prisoner. You forgive. You love unconditionally. You be holy as God is holy. Holiness is basically consecration. It's a separation from the world. It's a separation unto God. You are consecrated. You are called to be separated. You are called to be holy. For he is holy. And why is that? Because God knows holiness is the only way you're going to see him. Because holiness is the only way that you can be able to identify in truth and live in peace. And when you are in holiness, then you are consumed. And the fire that is inside of you burns all around you. So then it doesn't matter whatever fire may come up against you or wherever you find yourself, any predicament, any problem, any storm, you'll be at peace because the fire is inside of you. It is consuming you. And in closing, there's this lamp. We tried it the first service, but I thought about this. This lamp is off. If, it, if we had it working, we would go ahead and pump this light this and it would light but that's okay Jesus said there's a parable of ten virgins and, and they all had lamps I don't I mean I'm just going to say similar something like this and they were all lit and the oil was in there and it said five of them had extra oil and five didn't so they had their lamps and they were walking and they were waiting and the Bible says the bridegroom tarried or the groom tarried so they kind of fell asleep. And then they were awakened. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And when they were awakened, the five realized, hey, we don't have enough oil. Give us some of yours. Give us some of yours. And the other five says, we don't have enough. We're good. We got to go. Go to the store and buy some, basically. And so they go and they search. And they get some. They come back. And it says, okay, you know what? The, they, the, those five that had the oil and that were burning, they went into the marriage ceremony. And the doors were shut. And the other ones couldn't get in. So what I'm trying to tell you today is 
You don't need fire to produce oil. You don't. Olive oil is produced by what? A millstone. And it basically crushes the olive and it takes out the oil and then they refine it. Depending on how you want it, by either hot or cold water, they pass over with their impurities. But there's no heating. The same way God goes ahead and puts us through that fire and purifies us and crushes and takes out all of those infirmities, all those things to give us the character of Christ is the same way that that oil is produced. But you know, if you don't need fire to produce oil, but oil does make a fire burn. Oil ignites a fire. Oil causes a fire to rage. Oil causes a fire to burn. So as Pastor Junior makes his way up here, there's a few things I have for you before we leave, and he'll do it for you. Don't let and don't be caught with your lap empty and no oil. Or you could have oil but no fire. You need them to burn. You need that fire to be lit. You need that fire to burn. You need God to consume you. And when he consumes you, the oil will flow. And when that oil flows, the fire will grow. What we have here, and, and it's nothing special. It's not going to, it's not a potion. or No, 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 no. I drove down here because I wanted to bring these to you guys. I didn't fly. There's these little oil vials. And there's a vials that Pastor Sam and the elders prayed over. And it's just, it, it's just anointing oil. And so I want you guys to have these. And I want you to look at them and remember them and know them. And I want you to do something radical when you get home. I want you to anoint every room in your house. I want you to anoint your family. I want you to anoint your cars. I want you to anoint your phone. Proclaim. God, this is your, this is your vessel. I am your anointed. You have anointed me. Holy Spirit, I'm giving you permission. It's a radical faith. It's a belief. So take those with you and anoint yourselves and anoint that oil over you and ignite that fire and let the flame burn. And let me tell you something. Even if you say, hey, my fire is out, all I am is ashes. Well, the Bible says he makes beauty from ashes. All things are made new. Nothing is impossible. So don't disqualify or count yourself out. I love you guys. You're in my prayers. I thank you for this opportunity. God bless you.